Welcome to Kitty Talks, the podcast that shows you how to follow your passion and purpose. My name is Kitty Waters. I'm a serial entrepreneur and co-founder of ATL Europe Group, also the creator of Kitty Talks. Our mission is to inspire a generation of changemakers to follow their passion and purpose and make a difference on the planet. All our interviewees have been carefully selected and you will hear amazing inspirational stories of the people who have listened to their little voice and followed their purpose. They will reveal bite-sized tips and success secrets that can help you to fulfill your passion and purpose on the planet. Be sure to head over to kittytalks.com and sign up for our exclusive club where you can hear behind-the-scenes footage. These interviews will inspire you to take action. Please like and share so others can have the courage to follow their passion and purpose too. inspirational life stories that empower you to create yours. Today I've got a toe curling life story for you. I have, I have Sean Atwood joining us. Welcome Sean. Oh thanks for having me on. My goodness have we got a story for everybody listening. Um, so Sean, let me just tell you a little bit about him. He is an author and a human rights activist and he's going to tell us more about his work. Um, his life story is incredible. Uh, it was a well, stock market millionaire at a very young age. Uh, took, well, left England, went over to America, to Arizona. And from what I understand, you're going to tell us more about this, uh, Sean, but wanted to take the kind of cream Liverpool rave scene over into Arizona. Uh, that and the drugs. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, that took its toll and took you on another path. But I'm not going to uh, ruin the surprise. Um, but Sean, can you tell us a bit more about your work uh, that you're doing at the moment? Yeah, I have had to learn some lessons the hard way. I made a lot of money as a younger person in the stock market. And I just went completely off the rails with it. I started to throw rave parties in Arizona. Had people bring in tens of thousands of hits of ecstasy over from Holland. So it was my own default. SWAT team came. And I ended up in this jail where not only were the gang members murdering prisoners, even the guards were murdering the prisoners. Oh so that was my wake-up call. And I saw in the jail the horror of what drug use led to. Because 90% of the prisoners were shooting up heroin, shooting up crystal meth, two-thirds of hepatitis C. And it made me ashamed of putting people on that road. But I knew I couldn't change my past. So I resolved to go out and share my story in the hope that people wouldn't make my mistake. So my work now is I go in schools, frighten them what happened to me <coughs> and the conditions I experienced in the hope that they won't do all the stupid stuff that I did. And would you like, would you say, because obviously we, we had a conversation, we've both had our dalliance with addiction and drugs over the years. Like, would you say yeah. in your younger years, um, you went from obviously Liverpool over to Arizona like, did you even realise the, the impact? Like, what, where, where were you? What, where were you? It sounds like you were just, you know, living the high life at that point. You know, if you've grown up on movies like Scarface, Blow, Pulp Fiction, and you start to get into this lifestyle, this drugs lifestyle, and you're rising up the ranks, and you're meeting people in the mafia, 
in Arizona, uh, the New Mexico Mafia, they had my back. I was young and egotistical and emotionally immature. And I'm thinking, hey, I'm living like a character out of one of these movies, you know, this is so cool. And the drugs, they've scrambled my decision-making processes. So they're telling me, yeah, you're the man. This is, you know, you're Mr. Cool Guy. Now we're going to get arrested. You're the character out of a movie. And it's just fed the madness, surrounding myself with people doing the same stuff. We were all going over one big slippery slope and reinforcing each other's negative behavior. But there was no one sober from the outside that could put the brakes on us. Because doing drugs, you know, for over 10 years, every year, as I went further and further into that lifestyle, it was a slow process. And I didn't actually notice how deep I was getting in over those five to 10 years. No, but by the end of it, my competition in the ecstasy market was Sammy the Boldravano, underboss of the Gambino crime family who'd murdered almost two dozen people. Jesus. And when I'd sobered up in jail and that cloud had lifted out my head, and in this sober light, his son told me he'd been dispatched one night to kidnap me from a nightclub and take me out to the desert. And then looking back from a sober perspective, it's like, you know, how, how on earth are you still alive? How, how, how do you go from a loving home? Good education, you know, degree in business studies, to being successful and then putting yourself in all these dangerous situations. And what uh, what drugs were you doing at that point? I started I started as a student at uni in the Manchester Rave scene when it began, taking ecstasy and taking So when I went to America, I continued that. I, I was doing ecstasy, club drugs. Not speed, I was doing crystal meth, which is perhaps one of the strongest drugs they ever did. Ketamine, all kinds of um, prescription pills from Mexico, because Arizona's on the border of Mexico. Um, one of the reasons that I had to find out what the root causes of that, will, that, that led me to taking all this, because there was a therapist yeah. who became my guardian angel in, in the prison. And he forced me to go deep inside myself and find out why I'd gotten involved in, in drugs. And I, I, I had anxiety from my teenage years. I was almost beat to death by some drunks. Right. Four, four of them attacked me, started kicking me in the head. One pulled out an iron bar, hit me in the face, knocking myself out. My whole body went warm and numb. I was seeing stars. And I thought I was getting murdered, but I actually just passed out. So after that, I won't go up and dance, I'm too self-conscious, I won't go up and talk to women in, in pubs and clubs. This anxiety was really exacerbated. But once I took ecstasy as a young person, nice. all that anxiety melted away. Yeah. I wouldn't dance and I wouldn't stop talking to people and I wouldn't stop hugging and, and, and you know making friends with strangers all night long. So I was forced to go on and in the journey by reading. I read over a thousand books in just in six years, a lot of philosophy and psychology. And and this therapist who was like my guardian angel who, who helped me address the root causes of why I took drugs mm. and he gave tools to deal with anxiety and tools to be confident and I, I you know I still fall back on the stuff that he taught me and it's such a valid point because as teenagers or you know as young people we get introduced to alcohol to drugs before we're really fully formed and like you said, most people use alcohol or drugs as a way of relaxing to start with around necessarily the opposite sex, or like you said, they might have anxiety and you just don't realize the impact that it 
long term that it can have and where it takes you. They reckon half of young people try illegal drugs in this country and a percent of them, a small percent, get addicted. And what I found in prison was a lot of the people who were addicted, they'd suffered some kind of traumas as children. Mm. Our parents had died or they'd been molested or they'd been thrown away as kids raised on the street. They were taking drugs to deal with that pain, to try and mask it, to self-medicate. Mm. And what the society do then, it gets these people, these drug users, puts them in prison, treats them like animals. And they just take heroin all day to try and deal with the pain that is compounded. Mm. So it's really sad. And you mentioned alcohol. Out of all drugs in this country, alcohol is the one that kills the most young people. Three young people a week die from binge drinking. Number one drug in murder, rape, incest, pedophilia, violent crime. That's another thing that I try and educate young people about. Mm. So your work now is you go out in schools and you tell them or educate them around your story to hopefully uh, stop people having, uh, well, going into or taking drugs. Well, I go in and I say, look, I'm here to tell my story. Mm -hmm. So I don't preach at them. I don't come in like the typical, you know, drugs are bad for your brain. Here's what happens, blah, blah, blah. And I just let them draw the conclusions themselves. Mm -hmm. So I start out saying, no, I was like one of you. Went to school, got my A-levels, business studies degree, model student, and then went off, worked in the stock market, made a couple of million. Mm -hmm. But then here's what happened because I I wasn't emotionally mature enough to deal with it. And it led to this JLM where gang members were smashing people's heads against toilets almost on a daily basis. I saw people's teeth fly out, bounce on the floor. I saw an old mentally ill man who wouldn't stop rambling. If the gang members attacked him, blood started spraying out the back of his head. Guards murdering mentally ill prisoners. People getting carried on stretchers, not just with blood coming out the heads. Yellow fluid, like brain stuff coming out the heads, looking like they were totally dead. So once I get into that stuff, Show them pictures of people who've been attacked in the jail. Talk about the food that had dead rats in it. Cockroaches that were crawling all over us at night times. Spiders that were biting people and causing wounds called volcano lesions. The venom was like acid. It was like eating people's flesh down to the bone. And then, you know, the horror of not just jail, but what my selfish decisions caused on my family. Mm. One had a nervous breakdown. My sister had to have counselling. I could still see the hurt and pain on my family's face that I caused them. You know, they, I was blessed that they supported me because I met so many people in prison who've been disowned by their family members. Mm. You know, every year, my, my family members would fly out to Arizona to visit me. But you know, to see that what I put them through my through my selfish behaviour and selfish decisions, it, it hurts my stomach. It makes me sick to my stomach still still to this day. And how long, because this prison um, was in Arizona, wasn't it? And it's one of the most dangerous prisons, um, from what I understand. People were banned for life and locked up for, uh, for a long time. How long were you uh, inside for? I was facing a maximum 200-year sentence. They said every time I spoke about drugs on the phone, it was five to ten years. They had 20 plus charges. In America, your sentence is determined by how much money you've got and who your lawyer is. All my money was seized. Parents remortgaged the house, cashed in a retirement account for almost $100,000. If they hadn't done that, I'd still be in prison right now. But so the fact that you had some money helped you actually get out of prison? Yeah, if you don't have money in the American justice system, you get hung out to dry. And that's why the police target the people from the lowest socioeconomic backgrounds. They know they don't stand a chance. 
are going to get signed a public defender who works for the state, and they're going to end up signing a plea bargain and going over to the prison system. It's just one big conveyor belt for all these private prisons and contractors to make money off the back of them. And I was reading, uh, watching something, I think it was your TEDx interview, and you described how when you go inside, like, it's literally a matter of survival, and then you'll get indoctrinated into some gang or other, and because you were white, you were put into a certain gang, but how there was rule. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because that was fascinating and scary at the same time. In the UK, it's gangs by area. So one part of London might be at war with another part of London over forward with drugs. The drugs is the biggest business for the gangs in the prison system. In America, it's the same. The drugs is the big business that everything revolves around. But the gangs are racial. Mm-hmm. So in Arizona, four gangs, whites, blacks, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans are the four major gangs. Anyone who's white comes under the control of neo-Nazi Aryan Brotherhood prison gang. Wow. So as soon as I go in, a group of skinheads are like, hey, we want a word with you in the cell back there. And you, you, you can't say no to these guys. So you go in the cell, they close the door, there's no way out. They're like, what are your charges? Like, what do you mean? I've read my charges, I don't understand them because I, you know, it was all in this legalese. Like, what do you mean you don't understand your charges? You're a chomo, you're a chomo. I don't know what chomo is even. They've got me up against the wall if you're about to smash. Chomo is a child molester. So in the end, I pulled my charge sheet out and they saw I got drug charges and they left me alone. But some charges are KOS by the gang, which means kill on sight. On sight. Yeah. Wow. Other charges are SOS, smash on sight, such as drive by shootings because women and kids sometimes get hit. Uh, smash on sight means beat up. So yeah. anyone coming in with a sex offense or a crime against a woman or a child, right away, gang is going to murder them. Or at the very least, they're going to smash them. That's called convict justice. Once you get through that interrogation, you have to go and meet the head of the gang. Explains all the rules you must follow. That's the whole gang will smash you. Someone calls you a punk, a bitch, or hits you, you got to fight them on the spot. The whole gang will smash you. You must take showers, or they'll smash you for bad hygiene. Can't go make you friends with the guards, they'll smash you for snitching. Can't go sitting at the tables with other racers, they'll smash you for that. Everything you take for granted about your safety is reverse. They're constantly looking for people to beat up mm. because that's how they earn their reputations and their tattoos. It's called putting work in to earn your political ink. And the more serious the violence, higher up in the gang are the tax that they earn. Under every head of the gang, a guy's called torpedoes. These are like um, work in progress. They're looking for people to smash so they can earn their tats. And to be a full member, you have to murder someone in jail for, for the gang. I don't really know what to say. Like, <laughs> my God. Yeah, that's why every day I got used to the sounds of heads getting bashed against toilets, bodies getting thrown around, seeing people getting carried out on stretches just covered in blood. And, I, you know, I, I was having nightmares uh, for a long time about it. I'm not whining. I take responsibility for myself in there. And I, I do a lot of yoga and meditation now to deal with it. And I, um, again, stuff I read about you, it, you were saying that initially you were pining for your old life, the kind of high life, the drugs, the alcohol, and then obviously something, what was the kind of wake up call? Because even in there, you're pining for your old life. That wasn't a wake up call enough for you. Okay. I was so attached to material things 
But when I got arrested, I was resenting getting caught and I wanted all of my material things back. Mm. They didn't have much evidence against me and I hadn't properly seen the harm I'd caused society yet. It hadn't sunk in the nature of all of the drug use in the prison and stuff like that. Mm. But in my second year in, on remand, when the prosecutor said, you're looking at a maximum 200-year sentence. And I'm thinking, am I going to spend the rest of my life in this kind of an environment? I'm just going to slash my wrist and bleed out. I couldn't take it anymore. It was like the pressure on my head had been tightened so much. And, you know, I planned to, to do it, to kill myself after I guarded the security walk. But what stopped me was I wanted to say goodbye to my family. And I was allowed seven photos. So I, I looked at these photos and looking at my mum, dad and sister and girlfriend and, and I start crying and thinking my mum's going to get a call saying he slashed his wrist in the foreign jail cell. I couldn't bear the thought of putting my mum through that. And that's what stopped me from doing it. But getting pushed to the brink of suicidal insanity, it crushed that ego, that materialistic side of the ego, out of me. Because when you're facing 200 years, your million-dollar house on the mountain is irrelevant. Your sports cars, plasma screen TV, pool table, swimming pool, jacuzzi. Who cares? You just want to get your life back. Yeah. So when I got sentenced to nine and a half years, that was the, one of the happiest days of my life because I knew I was going to get out and I knew I was going to get my life back. So you were in there nine and a half years? Well, as a first-time non-violent drug offender, I only had to serve just under six. It did me a lot of good. It completely transformed my worldview, reading over a thousand books. Felt all my conditioned beliefs being stripped away. And it helped me build a framework in my head to not go back to drugs and that self-destructive behavior. Mm. So by the sounds of things, you got to see that the drugs were masking the anxiety that you had around yeah. this, this incident. Um, yeah. And then from there, you got to see the impact of your kind of, well, say selfish uh, actions on others yeah. and you know, like you said, you were lucky to be alive, really, when you, you know, find out how deeply ingrained you were in the drug culture. Yeah, definitely. And then talk us through, like, why do you, what did that teach you? Like, why do you think you had to go through that experience? It saved my life. If I hadn't gone through it, I probably would have ended up dead um, through drugs somehow or other, or in some other kind of very serious trouble. So... You know, when you've when you've sold yourself on the fact that you're living like a character out of a movie and you, you can't quit your addiction, getting high every weekend, you know, for days on end and an outside force has to intervene. Yeah. You know, that's what that's what happened in my life. I credit the SWAT team with you know, if they hadn't come, where would I be now? Yeah. So I wouldn't I thought I knew a lot, you know, before I got arrested. I thought I thought I knew so much I didn't need to read books. And once I started reading the prison, I realized I didn't know anything at all mm. how much there was to learn. And if I hadn't, if, you know, so again, I had to, I had to guide an invisible hand to pluck me from this drug addicted lifestyle into this dark place where I would, a mirror was held up to me, to my soul, that I would never have looked at if, if, if it hadn't been in this dark place. And to then 
meet this psychotherapist and do all this reading. Everything just came together mm. at the right time to save my life. Mm. Well, it sounded like you have a massive, massive consciousness shift, basically. Um, yeah, I certainly did. Mm. Yeah, because the way I looked at the world was completely differently. And I just felt things revising in my head so fast. You know, I was reading so quickly, I'd feel my conditioned beliefs getting stripped away. And then a month later, something that I'd revised would get stripped away again because I just read something else that, that would revise it. Mm. It was the education opportunity of a lifetime. Mm. And um, from what I understand, you started writing for other prisoners. Okay, so my writing got smuggled out, got put on the internet. And then I started writing about some of the prisoners. And they started to get pen pals and books sent to them. And the community built around my blog, John's Jail Journal. We didn't have internet access. But my parents would send us printouts of readers' comments and questions. And it was like when these things arrived in the prison, all my mates would come in my cell and, you know, they'd, they'd read the blogs, they'd read the questions from the public. Like a bridge was built to the outside world for all of us. Through yeah. The internet. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then you also started to write a biography or a life story for one of the, the most senior members of the gang. Um, I wrote a biography for a mafia guy who started to protect me in the prison. His name was Two Tonys. He was an Italian mafia associate classified as a mass murderer who was serving 140 plus years. He left the dead, he'd left the dead bodies of rival gangsters from Arizona to Alaska. There's a hierarchy in the prison amongst the murderers. If you've murdered only gangsters, you're top of the respect. If you've murdered a woman or a child, heaven help you, it's KOS, kill on sight for those guys. They try and kill them when they can. So I did get attacked a few times in prison. And a, a new cellmate introduced me to two Tonys because he knew he could protect me. He didn't tell me that at the time. He just asked me to play a game of chess with him. And I did. And he liked me. And he said, look, Sean, on the road of life to stay alive, I've had to become a quick, rigid character. Feel you're an honest person. Would you be willing to write my life story? And I said, yes, I didn't, I didn't understand the full implications. But he took me under his wing. I was going into his cell every day. I wasn't supposed to be in there. He had people positioned outside watching the guards. And he, it, people would come in and, to show their respect for him. And, you know, he'd say I was his official biographer. And that, that respect then uh, started to rub off on me. And once he started to protect me, I never got attacked again after that. So, you know, thank you, too, Tony. He's, he's dead now, sadly, from liver cancer. So I'm good to Wow. And tell us about when you came out of prison. Like, how was that reintegrating back into society? Because I was institutionalised, my mum said I was like a puppy dog following around the house waiting for orders. It took me over a year before I moved out of my parents' house and moved down south and started to get employment. And first time I got offered to do a school tour, I was so nervous I couldn't even eat my breakfast. But, but one of the things Dr. O taught me was never going to completely get rid of all of your anxiety. Mm -hmm. Some anxiety is actually good for you. It sharpens your senses. So with, with, with his voice resounding in my, in my brain and him also telling me that not to run away from the things that you're afraid of, to confront your fears head on and challenge yourself from time to time. With all this advice Dr. O gave me, I continued, I threw myself into public speaking. 
And, uh, and you know, I ended up now, I do over 100 talks a year. I have a little bit of anxiety still, but nothing like when I first started. So. And you said that um, you now do yoga, meditation. Is, is that a way of helping your anxiety as well? When I was in the gang-infested jail, my sister sent me a book called Yoga Made Me which I completely hid under my mattress because I didn't want the gang members to see it and start picking on me. But my sister kept on at me, have you tried yoga yet? Have you tried yoga yet? So I'm like, to get her off my back, I need to, I need to try it. So I waited until my cellmates were downstairs. I was so embarrassed. And then I did a basic sequence of forward bend, side bend, tap, dog, final twist. And at the end, you know, I just lay down flat on the back in corpse pose and I felt all this stress and tension just melting out of my shoulders I said to myself I used to take drugs to feel like that you can actually do this naturally <laughs> so, you know I started to throw myself into yoga um there was a point in my second year in remand I was moved into maximum security because my bail was doubled to 1.5 million from half a million I was living with people who I didn't know, a lot of them were murderers, crystal meth, chemists, and it was completely cockroach infested. Uh, just before the lights were about to go out, cockroaches, would, they would line up in the cracks in the walls <laughs> with, their, with their antennae sticking out like this, oh like God. twitching, twitching like this, like, like an army just waiting to invade. Oh. As soon as the lights went out, they just flooded the room. Oh, my God. So you, you had a choice. You could wrap a sheet around you, so like the mummy, leave a breathing hole, keep them off you. But this, it, this was the desert, and it trapped heat to your body. And you had all these bleeding and itching skin infections and bed sores. Trapped heat making it so itchy, you couldn't possibly sleep. So in the end, you'd throw the sheet off and let the cockroaches crawl on you. Um, they, they tickle you. To this day, if anyone tickles my hands, oh. I, I think, I woke up, saw me nights when tickling my hands, tickling my feet, trying to get in my mouth, trying to get in my nose. They tried to get in your ears, to eat your earwax. It's like, it's like honey to them. I had a neighbor who was asthmatic, wakes up one morning out of breath, grabs his inhaler, takes a blast, shoots a live cockroach inside himself. Says he can feel it moving around. Threw up and somehow it was stuck inside when it wouldn't come out. Oh God. So at this point, getting back to yoga meditation, at this <laughs> point, this was when I was pushed to the brink of suicidal insanity, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I couldn't sleep with the cockroaches crawling all over me. I was if you go nights without sleep, you start to hallucinate and hear voices. Yeah. And I, I told I told the medical that in the jail and they put me on medicine to, to help me sleep. And that had side effects then, you know, my head was clouded, my thoughts were low and at the back of this book yoga made easy there was a section on meditation it says you sit there and you count your breath and your brain relaxes and your thoughts eventually slow down and stop so you know what i did was because of all the cockroaches and i waited at night until everybody was asleep and it was locked down put my pink socks on and took my pants in so the cockroaches couldn't crawl up my legs and my back's near the wall roll over the wall as well the cockroaches Occasionally, one's dropping off the ceiling onto me and bouncing off me. Anyway, so I'm, I'm sat there with my legs crossed, sat on some books, trying to do this meditation business. And um, 
thinking like, you know, the thoughts are just too fast paced to live this life, this quick lifestyle. This, this meditation doesn't make any sense to me at all. But I, I persevered. And in the beginning, I'm counting my breath. Um, and the thoughts, when they come in, started to push them out. And it got to the point where I was meditating for hours and hours on end. And my thoughts completely stopped. And I got visuals. And I go on these fantastic journeys with all these visuals. And um, my anxiety got down so much, I did manage to get off that medication. Wow. So you yeah. use meditation as a form, massive form of uh, complete stress relief being inside there. Meditation instead of medication. And to this day, I wake up now. And I do a little routine of some exercises, some yoga, some breathing exercises, and some meditation. Mm. Sets me up for the day. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Like, you know, you and I both were talking about how we've had the kind of drug experiences that now we can have through meditation. Um, yeah. Mm. The closest I've ever got to feeling on ecstasy is doing a yin yoga session and then a meditation session, a double whammy. And I come out of this little cafe Mila yoga place in Godalming in my car and I was feeling so high one time I was looking at the clouds listening to Sasha and I'm stopped at a red light and it turns green and I don't even people are peeping me they're like me 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 I'm just I'm just spaced out smiling at the clouds <laughs> you know drugs are a shortcut to that feeling but you can actually get there through exercise because your brain cascades the endorphins if you hit the spot right from exercise as well. And I tell the kids that, you know, you can, you can get that natural high and a SWAT team's not going to come pay you a visit. But it's a really good thing to channel your energy into. Because if you've got an addictive personality like me, there's nothing wrong with channeling that energy into positive addiction. Mm. And if you give a negative addiction up, you've got to put something in its place. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Meditation, sport, some type of exercise. Could be just walking, anything kind of. Yeah, walking, great, yeah. And just, you know, taking time to the relaxation techniques because people are just sat on the computers all day these days. Well, and, and we're, they... so, we're so connected to, you know, technology, aren't we, that we don't give ourselves any space and, you know, we are literally addicted to technology. It, it can be a matter of life and death. Japanese government just warned that one in four people are now susceptible to Hiroshi. That is de death by overwork caused by heart attack or stroke. And they're making the companies pay compensation to the family members of victims of Hiroshi. Wow. So it's vital not to just sat there all day on your computer. Human beings aren't designed. We're designed to move around. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's imperative that people at least get out and do some walking, take a break, take some deep yogic, yogic breaths. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with you. Yeah. But thank you so much, Sean. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing your incredible story. Um, and I think, you know, it's amazing what you're doing because, you know, by sharing that story, you're inspiring and empowering others not to go down that path, which, you know, you're saving lives by being so yeah. open about your journey. So um, that's one of the kind of the vision for Kitty Talks is to inspire a generation of change makers to follow their passion and purpose and make a difference on the planet. Um, so we, your journey is very much in alignment with what we're doing. So thank you. 
You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. That's what I'm trying to do. Balance my karma for the how my karma plays you. Well, yeah, I um, have utmost respect for like what you've gone through, and I now, you know, um, I have a lot of respect for how you're turning things around and how the impact you're now having on the planet. So thank you for that. Cheers. Thanks. That's it for Kitty Talks this week. As I said, look at the show notes and find out more about Sean and how you can get involved. But thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Kitty Talks. Be sure to head over to our kittytalks.com website and become a member of our exclusive club and you'll get free interviews and access to our private Facebook group. Exclusive webinars and secret success interviews. See you there.